Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Jim Dickey to the show. Jim, welcome. Thank you, Jeremy. Jim is one of the original founders of CSO Insights. That's a research firm I've long respected, and he's been doing this for about 20 years. His new firm is called Sales Mastery. They are really focused on advising firms on how to address some of the future challenges in sales. I'm super excited to talk to someone who gets to spend their days future thinking. So we will talk topic-wise about Uh, I mean, near-term future, restarting your revenue engine, but more like medium and long-term future about using AI and the way that the sales profession and the profession of sales management needs to change. Before we get there, Jim, I'm going to ask you my standard first question, and then we'll just take it from there, which is, what is one of your favorite sales books of all time, and what's one or two of the key takeaways you got out of the book? I think one of the ones that really has gotten my attention recently is Tom Siebel's new book on digital transformation. You know, how to use the Internet of Things to change the dynamic between sellers and buyers. And I think some of the examples that he's using in his book just shows you how IoT is just going to explode the amount of data available to B2B sales forces. And it's really going to change us in terms of being vendors to being like collaborators and co-creators of solutions going forward. So really interesting perspective that he's bringing to the marketplace today. People so often think about Internet of Things as being on the consumer side of all this data being collected. But what are some of the major applications of IoT on the B2B side? Well, here's an example that, you know, you talked about there's an energy firm in Italy. And what they did was they originally went in and they replaced all of the standard energy meters with smart meters. So 40 million meters swapped out. Now, initially, it was to help predict where it's going to be problems on the energy grid. But think about it now. Every 15 minutes now, I think it's up to 74 million smart meters. Every 15 minutes, they're collecting an energy snapshot of every single meter across Spain and Italy. Well, think of the implications for sales, because now what I can do is I can say, okay, here's an 18-story building in Milan next door to a 30-story building in Milan, and the 18-story building's using 30% less energy. And I know why. I mean, AI is going to be able to figure out why. So all of a sudden, it's going to start doing the needs analysis for salespeople down the road. You know, I won't call up the facility manager and just say, hey, tell me about your building. I'll call up and say, let me tell you about your building. The guy right next to you, almost twice as tall, is using 30% less energy. Here's why they're using it. And here's what we would recommend for you. So I think it's going to change that whole dialogue. I think there are going to be huge implications on B2B. We're seeing things in fintech also, you know, changing the way the bankers will interact with their commercial clients. So I think there are going to be a lot of B2B implications uh, down the road as well. Before we dig into AI, what are some of the other sort of mega trends that you are paying attention to? I think, you know, everybody's been talking about the, you know, the changes and the dynamics between sellers and buyers. I was talking to Simon Fuhrer who's the CEO of Challenger. And I said, you know, I'm writing an article, you guys have done a lot of research on how many different people that sellers need to interact with. I said, I think your last number was, you know, five and a half or six. He says, oh, that's the old number. He says, the number last year was 10.2. And I just think this whole dynamic of, you know, really the messaging that sellers are going to have to do today, they're going to have to go out. I mean, think of yourselves as being a CRM salesperson. 
So when I'm selling to the CSO, you know, their hot button is, how are you going to help me increase revenues? But then all of a sudden, the CMO is going to come in and say, well, wait a minute, what are the implications on what I've done with already on marketing automation? Then the CIO is going to come in and say, forget about that. What about all the other legacy systems we've got? And then CFO is going to come in and what's a SaaS based? I got to pay for this thing forever. And then the CEO is going to come and say, hey, I'm going to be on CNBC Squawk Box. What about shareholder value? That's five different messages just there. And I think that we've got to go in and really be prepared not to do persuasion, but to do education and really have you know a much broader message to take out to each one of these individual personas. I have not seen major changes in tools or enablement necessarily teach sellers to be more effective at that sort of consensus sale. Have you seen an evolution of tools there? And if not, I'm curious, if you were starting a tools company, what would you build? Yeah, I I got a call from a company in the UK and they said, I know you're looking at AI for sales and we do uh, psychographic persona analysis of buyers. And I said, I really don't know what that means. And they said, it's easier if we just show you. So they sent, check your email. So I checked my email and there was an 18 page report on me. They have never met me. But what they had done was they'd gotten information on, you know, off of social, you know, what I've been posting on and liking and commenting on on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'd also analyze presentations that you can see that I've done on YouTube at different conferences and what are the topics I'm talking about, et cetera. And I mean, it was very detailed. It had, you know, like a Ocean Spive analysis of me. The very last page was really the money page. It says, here's how to approach Jim. You know, you've never met him. And so it listed all these things on my communication style, my work ethic, et cetera, which were all spot on. It had one thing wrong. It said, Jim may have a problem with sarcasm and I have a PhD in sarcasm. But I think what it really showed me was, let's say I've got a major account. We, you know, they've been my top account for years. I really have great relationships with the key executives, and one of them leaves, and somebody else comes in. You know, what do I do? Well, you know, I could get on you know, LinkedIn myself and see some basics on them. But I think there's some new AI advances, this being one of them, that's going to start to give you insights in that person so that you could then start crafting specific messages for them and know how to approach them and what's their hot button. My skeptic objection would be that those sorts of psychographic profiles are no better than horoscopes in that, yeah, most of it is true of all humans. Did you feel as though it was really doing things that wasn't horoscope-esque? One of the key things on it says, you know, Jim is a facts and figures guy. He needs data to back up everything, but he's willing to take a calculated risk when necessary. I mean, there was a little bit more than, you know, Jim likes puppies. So I was just pretty interested in in where things are going on that. And I think people are putting more things out there. We're not leaving our fingerprints on things, but we're leaving our digital fingerprints all over based on what we like, what we consume, et cetera. So I think there will be things that will start to give you more insights into people. And I think that that's going to be something we have to start arming our salespeople with. When I joined IBM a million years ago, they said, you know, call up the customer and ask them to tell you about themselves and about their business. Nobody's got spare time today, so I don't have time to educate you. I want to be able to go in and say, here's what I already know. And I think that's really one of the dynamics that's got to change is, are we putting our salespeople in a position where they can go in and talk to customers on their level? And I think those who do that will be successful. Those who don't are going to have problems. So let's say that you read a psychographic profile and one profile is, I'm going to use DISC personality types because that's most readily accessible in my mind. So from what you described, you may be a C, which are people who make data-driven decisions and are willing to take calculated risks when necessary. That's a classic sort of C profile. 
And let's say that someone else is an I, right? And that I person is the diagonal opposite. They are more sort of people driven and a little bit more often risk taking. Most salespeople are I's, by the way. So let's say that you know you're a salesperson, you encounter those two different profiles. Would you adjust the way that you engage that person? Does that not seem inauthentic? And do you think humans can actually make that adjustment to talk one way to one person and one way to another person? I think you don't want to be inauthentic on things. I think you want to respect what somebody is focused on. I got contacted by a firm a couple of weeks ago that said, you know, they're focused on matching up the right seller with the right buyer. So let's say the analysis is doing that. It realizes my style is very facts and figures oriented. My business partner, Barry Trailer is very relationship oriented. It may never assign that lead to me. If it's if the guy is really focused on relationship, it may actually push the lead over to me or to Barry because it knows he's the relationship guy versus if somebody comes along as being very analytical, it might push that lead over to me. So it's not asking Barry or I to change. It may be doing a better job of matchmaking. There was a wave, I don't know, a few years back, particularly in marketing-driven AI. And it seems like that first wave failed. Assuming you agree with that, what what do you think was wrong in the first wave? I think what happened was that people got too excited about AI. Yeah, I did my first AI projects in 83 and 88, and they were abject failures. <laughs> the hardware wasn't there. The software wasn't there. The data wasn't there. You know, We were just kind of playing around with things. I think what happened was I had a healthy degree of skepticism, and I think people started taking pieces of AI and applying it to pieces of customer lifecycle management. So today, there are clearly no suites that address the full customer lifecycle management cycle from there are people who are blissfully ignorant that your company exists to there are people that are wild advocates for you in the marketplace. But there are pieces of AI that are touching on parts of that. And I think as long as you realize that it's not going to solve all the problems, but it could solve a problem that you have. I think that's really, really key. I remember talking to the guys at U.S. Bank and, you know, they said, we're just going to focus, you know, AI on doing one thing. Are there existing customers who we already have relationships with that should be doing more things with us? And so they ran AI algorithms against 4.2 million records scored everybody, gave them a score of zero to 100. And they told their financial officers, go call in everybody who's got a score of 81 and above. Because here's what the AI has identified was what else they should be interested in. And they had a 234% uplift in conversion rate of existing customers to net new opportunities. You know, a year later, I called them up and said, I'd like to use that number in a presentation I'm making. I just want to make sure I've got it right. It's 2.34x uplift. And he says, well, that's right, but that's the old number what's the new number? And he goes, 3.86. And I said, what did you do differently? He said, nothing. The algorithms got smarter. Machine learning kicked in. So I think that there's things that say, you know, we're not going to solve all the problems, but that was a huge win for them by solving a piece of the puzzle. And I think what we've got to do is realize that, you know, there's AI out there. First off, we got to find analytics versus AI versus machine learning, which I know you guys have done a great job on. But I think the other thing on it is to just go through and say, let's go through and put AI in its proper place. And there's certain things that it does very, very well. And if that's one of the problems we have, then let's go focus on leveraging technology to do something we've never been able to do before. Actually, I think it would be good if you expand upon how you think about AI versus analytics versus machine learning. How do you draw the definitions of each of those? In the simplest way, what I think of it is, is analytics has been around for a long time. So it's, okay, here's a tool. And what you can do is you as a person can figure out, okay, I'm going to write the query. I'm going to run it against the data. I'm going to get some results back. I'm going to interpret the data. 
I'm going to make decisions based on the data and I will create actionable insights myself. And if I need to change the query, I change the query. You know, AI stepped in and said, okay, give me, you know, something to do. I'll go analyze it. You know, I'll come back to you with some insights on things and I will do the work for you. You then have to, as a human being, apply judgment to it. But I will do that analysis for you and find out the interesting trends. And I'll present those to you. And the machine learning kicks in a step farther, which says, you know, this is where we start to mimic a little bit of what human beings do is you come up with the algorithm. I will run it. I will analyze the data. I will give you the insights and tell you what actions I would suggest. And I will learn over time because I'll get better. The algorithm started making recommendations on who might be interested, but as it got results fed back to it, it says, oh, you know, maybe I need to lower the importance of geography and raise the importance of net worth or vice versa. And so it was adjusting things. And so it became part of the process of improving how it worked. Have you seen any good technologies that are less invasive to salespeople in terms of capturing what they're doing? There are things that if we ask salespeople to do yet another job of inputting data, <laughs> they're going to push back. They go, I got a day job. It's called selling. And so, you know, you know, they've been companies that have been taking a look at, OK, well, can we do something like this? You know, we're going to we're recording our conversation that we're having between a buyer and a seller. Can I do a transcription? Can I then analyze the scripts and come up with things or people are tracking activities? I think all of those things start to push data in there. You know, I know conceptually I should do sales cycle analysis on a regular basis. You know, I should be interviewing my salespeople and trying to find out, you know, what happened on that deal, win, loss, no decision. But I don't have time to do it. I don't have the patience to do it. You know, by the time I do a human being does the fifth interview, they start to get, you know, biased on what's going on, et cetera. Uh, But what they came up with is AI actually calls the salesperson every deal and starts saying, tell me about the deal and starts interviewing them over the phone. And it's got access, though, to all sorts of other data from CRM and from ERP. So I don't say, Jeremy, you know, did you win the deal at Acme or not? I already know if you won it or not. I also know if you won it, I know what they bought. I know what the price was. I know who the competitor was because that's probably in the CRM records. So I'm asking you for information that you know, I can use to go through and say, OK, what's the best way to compete against this competitor? Or what's the best way to cost justify this product in a COVID-19 world? Those types of things. So I think that there are things that are coming out there saying, let's go collect data, do it a different way. But I also think that, you know, when you're blind, a little bit of light is big magic. And it'd be great over time if the light got brighter and I could start to see shapes, tall from short, young from old, you know, male from female, et cetera. And eventually I got the lights bright enough that I could see the first cancer cells split in your body so I could do something about it. But when you're blind, a little bit of light is big magic. And I think that's what we're encouraging companies to go through and say, the data is not perfect today, but it's starting you to go in the right direction. And it will get better over time, but it doesn't get better unless you start. I remember talking to Kate Katowski. She's over at Amazon Web Services now. And she was talking about that in the past, we hired people based on having selling skills like persuasion. But with all the data coming in, you're going to want salespeople who also have skills like co-creation and collaboration and, you know, can work differently with people. So I think that we're going to see a change because of the fact that data will make it maybe more attractive for somebody to come in. But I think the millennials are coming in and showing us that, you know, they're much more prone to be open to using data than somebody like me at the tail end of my sales career. You know, I've still got some old habits that are going to be hard to change. If a salesperson is listening and agrees that they need to become more analytically proficient, what do you recommend? What's the best way for them to learn? 
The real thing that I think everybody's got to start doing is realizing, you know, what the implications of analytics and AI are going to be down the road. You know, we you alluded to the fact that we did our study. First off, let me say I skewed the data. I did it on purpose because when we went out and surveyed 500 plus companies, I wanted a third of them to have implemented AI for sales, a third to be evaluating it, and a third to have no interest, which is not reflective of the marketplace. I'm not saying there's a 33% market penetration of AI for sales, but I wanted three different audiences. The one question we asked everybody was, from what you know about AI for sales, which could be nothing even for the people who have no interest, what do you think the impact's going to be on sales three years from now? And you came back through on average, you came through that across all the participants, 43% said it's going to be a game changer. If you don't have it, you're going to be at a significant disadvantage. Another 38% came in and said, you know, it's an important addition. Then you had a few folks that said, it's going to be a nice to have addition to CRM or we can get by without it. But when we segmented it then by people who had actually implemented AI for sales, the number came in at 93% said it's a key addition to CRM or it's a game changer. Whereas you had about 50% of the people who had no interest saying, hey, you know, we can get by without it. And I think we're so used to thinking about the concept of first mover advantage. So I've got two companies. Neither of them have a formal sales process. One of them implements a process. I don't care what it is, Challenger, Millerheim, and whatever. I can show you based on historical data that they should have a competitive advantage over the firm that didn't implement that process in terms of percentage of overall plan attainment, percentage of reps making quota, win rate of forecast deals, et cetera. And they'll have that advantage until the other person does the same thing, and then they'll catch up. But there's a concept in AI called breakaway speed. And I think the U.S. bank example is I was sharing that data with another financial institution, and they were saying, you really think we could get a 234% uplift in lead conversions? I said, you know, that's half the question you should be asking. The other half is how far behind my competitor am I willing to be? Because U.S. Bank's not there anymore. They're 3.86. And by the time you get to 3.86, they could put it at 4.52. I think that this whole idea of, you know, this is going to have a huge impact. And I think salespeople, sales managers, I think everybody needs to start learning about what can be done today and what's going to be possible in the future, because it's going to change the whole dynamics of what we do. And it's going to change who's going to be successful selling. It's going to change how we coach them. It's going to change how we compensate them. So I think it's going to have huge implications and we've got to start educating ourselves. You can decide there's other things that are more important for you to do than implement AI for sales, but you at least have to make a conscious decision that I know what I'm saying when I'm saying I want to focus on changing the territories or something else more important than utilizing the new tools that are out there today. I often feel the the process is the easy part. I feel as though with methodologies, just as with tools, the hardest part is in getting people to adopt. Are there best practices for companies that actually successfully remain disciplined in deploying and evolving their sales methodologies versus ones where they, you know, whatever, as you said, they train in January and then I guess hope after that, that it sticks. Yeah. A friend of mine, Rick Page, one of my heroes in terms of sales, wrote a book called Hope is Not a Strategy. So (laughs) that got drilled into me at an early age. I think really, Jeremy, what we're starting to see out there right now is, you know, telling people what to do is easy. Jeremy, what I want you to do is I want you to call high. I want you to differentiate between the competition. I want you to create a sense of urgency. I want you to sell value so we can avoid discounting. And I want you to get somebody to do something now. And you go, great. I go through a say, jail trank. I know what to do. By the way, I knew what to do when I walked in the door, but thanks for reinforcing it. I don't know how to do those things. 
And I think that's the type of thing when companies are constantly analyzing, how do you do those things? What's the right way to get somebody motivated when they've got all these other things on their table? How do I even get them to agree to talk to me you know, the first day? And then how do I take them through the process on that? So everybody's kind of figuring out how do I get them to realize that what I'm trying to sell them is important now. And I think that's the real key on this thing is backing up the methodology with the right insights, the right wisdom, if you will, to go out and execute that. And again, constantly be analyzing and say, is there a better way of doing this? And how do we find that, synthesize it, and then share it with the sales organization? I'm curious if there's anything that you believe about the future of B2B sales that maybe others don't believe? I think the key thing that we're starting to see from the marketplace right now is, are we going out and are we telling our sales force people to focus on transactions or interactions? So what are transactions? Those are deals, rapid, repetitive, routine. Those are things that are screaming, by the way, to be automated. The key thing on this thing is to realize that we've got to have interactions with customers. Those are protracted. Those are complex. Those are value-add. A friend of mine, Joe Batiste, has gone over to Dell Computer. I love it. His title is Chief Creatologist. And so he's trying to figure out what are all the other assets that Dell has besides the product we sell that we could bring to the table? Do we have relationships with customers or suppliers? Do we have business processes we develop internally? Do we have patents? And I think that's really the thing that we've got to start worrying about is it's not just the relationship of sales with the customer going forward. It's the relationship of my enterprise with the customer's enterprise. And I think it's getting this organizational alignment that people aren't thinking about, that that's going to really be the deal going forward is Am I positioning my company to really be a partner to you versus just saying that my sales rep's a partner to you? If people do want to get in touch with you or learn more about Sales Mastery, what's the best way to do that? Uh, You can go to salesmastery.com or you can just email me at jim at salesmastery.com. I'm happy to send out a copy to report to any of the listeners who want it. So just drop me an email and I'll send you a copy of the study and invite you to uh, take part in the study next year when we do it again. Well, thanks for all you do for the sales profession. Thank you, Jeremy. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. Paige McCauley is our producer. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.